So two weeks ago, we talked about um, house of prayer. We talked about Jesus in the temple, throwing tables. He references Isaiah and Jeremiah, and that's what led us to roll out this new prayer gathering. It starts at nine next week. They saw Jesus and noticed his zeal for the house of God. And so we talked about the house of prayer and that we want the ruby to be a house of prayer. And so that's what kind of unfolded the 9 a.m. This week, if you're taking notes, look, I don't have slides and I had slides ready, so this is a big bummer. Um, So if you're taking notes, there's no keynote to do it for you anymore. Um, House of Presence, that's the title of today's conversation, House of Presence. And I'm just gonna let you know, we needed the keynote because I think I had... I think I have like 12 to 16 scripture references. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And so I was hoping to have a visual for you. So no pressure to take notes on it or keep up, but just know it's going down today, okay? All right, so I wanna start us off with a question. You guys here, you ready? I see a lot of new faces, welcome. My name's Joshua, we're a family here, be yourself. Let's, you guys ready? Let's have, let's have a little talk where I talk a lot. Um, if you knew that the presence of God was physically someplace in the world, only in one spot, would you go there? Like real talk, if you knew like the presence of God is over there in this container and if you'll hop on a plane and fly here and then connect to here and then here, you will arrive where God is. Wouldn't that sound kind of nice? Like, oh wow, that's awesome. Like, that sounds good. If I could just drop a pin, it's like, yeah, it's in India, just go to where the pin is and That's where God's hanging out. Like that's where his presence is existing. I don't know about you, but I'd be like getting on my YNAB app, which I don't use, it's a budgeting app. I don't use it, used to, it died to me. I'd be budgeting it out. If I had kids, I'd be thinking about, man, I don't just wanna go by myself. I wanna bring my wife, my children. Because if God is somewhere in the world physically, if he is actually locked into one spot, I definitely want to go there right? Like, I want to be where God is. I mean, all of us, I think, kind of want that on some level, Christian or not. I started thinking about when I went to Israel uh, in college for my study abroad trip and uh, went to Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've heard of the Wailing Wall, uh, or you could just call it the Western Wall, but the temple from like before Jesus even got here, a wall of the temple has been preserved, I think they dug it up, can't really remember, didn't pay attention, but anyway, the original Western wall is still somewhat intact. And Jewish people will make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and certainly they'll stop by that Western wall and they'll put their hands on it and they'll pray. In fact, this is actually a really holy place. Uh, I I found this out. In the sages of the Talmud, which is just a compilation of rabbinical masters having some awesome quotes, Did you keep up with that part? Um, Here's a quote. If you pray at the Western Wall, it's as if you prayed before the throne of glory because the gate of heaven is situated there and it's open to hear prayer. Some believe this wall bordered the Holy of Holies. And I'm I'm gonna tell you what the Holy of Holies is later. But this wall is really holy. It's a place that inhabits the presence of the living God. And so people fly in from all over the world just to go to Jerusalem and see this place because it's the original temple that you hear about in the gospels. I mean, it's really powerful. And even as a Christian that doesn't believe that God is abiding close to that wall, right? That's not a part of my belief system. I still just felt the reverence of it. 
It was really powerful. I mean, even just knowing Jesus breathed around that wall, I was like putting my hands on it and bawling. I was just like, I can't believe you were here. It was just ugly, you know? It's just like, God, at the very least, Jesus saw this wall, and that just felt reverential. And, and when you see people, like, putting their hands on it and they're praying, they're not, they're not praying like we pray during, like, you know, they're not praying like we worship, where it's clearly optional, you know? We're like, I don't know, wait till the next song and see if it hits, you know? It's like, no, they, they're there for a reason. They did not accidentally get to the wall. They went there with purpose, and they pray like it. You can just tell. And even if passerbys would walk by, you felt the quietness. Maybe I'm making too much of this memory. This is how I seem to think it was. So I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm lying by accident. But I feel like I remember there just being a quiet reverence around this area that even if you weren't praying, you understood, hey, everyone here is pretty focused on like talking to their creator. That's, that's what they believe is happening. And that's really powerful, right? That, that deserves our reverence. And it makes sense that people would travel from all over the world just to touch that wall, just to pray. Because if God is there, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you do the same thing if you believe the same thing? And so as a Christian pastor, as someone that believes in the gospel, it kind of begs the question, like where, if I don't believe it abides in a wall, God's presence, then where do I believe God's presence rests? Where does his presence Abide, and that's what I wanna to do today. I wanna to talk about that question, and I wanna start all the way in Genesis and just kind of slowly, but maybe also kind of hyperspeed, walk through the biblical narrative about the presence of God, all right? So here we go. I'm about to reference a ton of scriptures, and uh, if you want notes afterward, I have them, and I can send them to you if it's hard to keep up, okay? All right, let me take a little drink. And now I'm gonna tell you about a water that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. <laughs> Sound good? I'm so ready for children. <laughs> they're gonna hate me and love me, and they're gonna hate that feeling. Um, all right. So as you know, I would assume, the Genesis story, chapters one through three, it starts with Adam and Eve, and it's, it's kind of crazy. They're in this uninterrupted reality where it's just like them and God. I think in Genesis 3, it says something like, God was walking in the cool of the day. So it's just like, imagine, imagine being at like Severe Park and God's like over there walking and you're like, that's God and this isn't weird. Wouldn't that be kind of crazy? That's Adam and Eve's reality, right? They, they have that kind of ebb and flow with their heavenly father. Like relationship with God is not weird to them. It's very normal that he's just there in their midst. And if you know, I'm assuming you probably know a little bit of what happens here. Adam and Eve find themselves kind of eager to get on the same level of God's wisdom and knowledge. And that desire, that appeal, it gets to them. They break the one rule, right? The one rule. You had one job. And they eat the fruit. And sin happens. And God's perfect. And now humanity is imperfect. And they cannot coexist. And so what happens is God closes off the Garden of Eden. And he puts angels to guard Eden, that humans would never be able to enter back into it, right? And so they're kicked out of Eden. And for a while, there's this gap between God and humans. And there's no real rhythm or pattern for how humans can even talk to God. Like, you know, he talks to Abraham, he talks to Noah, but like we don't see him consistently like abiding with people, right? Now, we spend a lot of time in the fall talking about the people of Israel, Moses, the burning bush, 
the call to go to Egypt, rescue the people out, and then God's promise to deliver Israel to the promised land. Once the people group of Israel, God's chosen ones, are free from Egypt, God actually starts to give them a plan, a way to inhabit the presence of God, okay? It starts uh, with a tabernacle, and I had a whole picture for you with like labels and all this stuff. (sighs) Anyway, Exodus 40, verses one through three, the Lord is gonna talk to Moses about this tabernacle, okay? He says, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. Let me explain. Tabernacle is basically like an RV church, all right? You can pick up and go. And I have an affinity for that kind of stuff. Stuff that packs light, just move around and unpack it, and it's just, boom, it's easy easy to set up. That was a tabernacle. But it wasn't so much for convenience's sake. It was because Israel was a nomadic people. Remember, they flee Egypt, but they weren't just leaving Egypt. God had promised them a, a land, a portion of land, a promised land that one day they would be a fortified nation. But until then, they're on the move. Okay, and so they build this tabernacle that they can fold up and unfold. All right, so within the tabernacle, there was this thing called the Holy of Holies. It was this little piece of the tabernacle that was where God's presence, according to scripture, like a cloud would descend into. And as long as that cloud was there, they would know we stay here, we don't move. And when his presence would go up, they would move and they would follow a pillar of fire. Pretty crazy stuff. If you're, I mean, if you believe this, it's kind of like try to picture it if you really believe it because it's kind of cool and weird. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so in this Holy of Holies, there was a veil that covered the Holy of Holies and it was to protect just any human from just accidentally kind of walking in. Like you kind of lose your way and there you are in the Holy of Holies and then boom, you're dead because God's perfect and you're not. And so the veil was there because it was like God's power was so potent, his righteousness was so potent that you couldn't just walk in, all right? So that veil was there to separate separate you from the Holy of Holies, much like the angels protecting you from walking back into Eden, saying you cannot come back. The veil was there going, you cannot enter into here. God's presence is here, but it doesn't mean you can just walk in, okay? All right. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, and on top of it was a seat, and that was where the presence of God would rest. Within the Ark of the Covenant was testimonies, of what all God has done. Some say the 10 commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant. We know Aaron's staff, Moses' brother Aaron, that his staff was in the Ark of the Covenant. So it held in it really important artifacts that told the people of God, like he's here, he's been here, he's over us, we can trust him, we have to have the Ark of the Covenant. It's really important. If you ever read the Old Testament, you'll see when the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen, everybody freaks out. It's really important, okay. On one day, a priest could go into this Holy of Holies could go through the veil. It's called the Day of Atonement. He'd have to go through all these little ceremonial cleanses, wash himself, wear the right clothes, get ready. Because if you walked in there incorrect, you didn't walk out. That's just how it was. He's holy, God is perfect, he's righteous. So a priest, a chosen priest, once a year, makes some sacrifices, does some ceremonies, and gets forgiveness on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. It's pretty wild. You can feel the holiness of it. I was talking to my wife after the nine at communion and, and she was talking to me about like, man, you really felt like the holiness of God, how untouchable he was. And our culture today kind of forgets like that's actually his, that's actually true, it's who he is, that's real. Like he is that powerful and that holy that 
if, if you were near his holiness, it would just knock you out. It's game time, it's over. And so he's so holy, right? And this is how people understand God to be. He's here where his chosen people, there's his presence over there, and I've got a safe distance, and that's just kind of how it goes. They can make their sacrifices, they can ask for forgiveness, but in terms of like being in the presence of God, that wasn't really a thing, right, normally. There's some stories we can pick out, but it wasn't normal for everyday humans. Okay, moving on to the temple. So Solomon, King David's son, Solomon, becomes King Solomon. I've said his name way too many times already. His whole thing is I've gotta build the temple of God. And really, I've realized, I've always wondered like, what was the difference between a tabernacle and a temple? Uh, a temple wasn't mobile, that's it. A temple is a much more beautiful tabernacle. It's freaking huge, it's really free. I don't, freaking, that's fine, all right. Um, we're, we're good, sorry though, if it, if it, hopefully not. Um, but a temple was this big, huge structure, but it still contained a holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the veil, all those things. But what it did mean Once you build a temple, it means, hey, we've arrived. We're a nation. We're no longer nomadic. This is our land. And there's the temple. And in 1 Kings 8, verse 10, this is what it says about the temple. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's awesome news. They build this permanent residency for the presence of God, and God honors it. He shows up in a cloud, and it's like, that's a big deal, because this isn't going anywhere, so God isn't going anywhere, and he's here. This is why, if you've ever read like the, the book of Ezra or Nehemiah, you learn the people of Israel are exiled again, the temple is partially destroyed, and they are pleading. Like If you read Ezra, it's like they're asking like the king of Persia, King Cyrus, please let me go back to Jerusalem. We have to rebuild the temple. And if you really think about it, it's so sad because the temple holds the presence of God and an enemy came in and just destroyed it. And they're like, guys, we'll be your slaves for as long as you want us to be, but please let us go back. Did that door, Tanner, can you close that door? It swung open on its own. It felt holy to me, but you didn't see it. So I think it was just the wind. Um, um, Anyway, so thank you, Tanner. It's really cold outside. You helped us there. Okay, where was I? Oh, oh, oh. Ezra Nehemiah, boom, okay. So it makes sense that people are going, please help, please let us go rebuild the place that holds the presence of God. It's that Western wall feel, like that's the place, okay? All right. So to make a very long and incredibly intricately beautiful story short, this was life in the Old Testament. This was how relationship with God was understood. We hope the priest is holy and pure and can atone for the sins of our people, right? Okay. So... You ready for Jesus? Here he comes. New Testament. When Jesus arrives, there's some important elements that get real beautiful if you'll really let it soak in, okay? So in the past, God's presence draws near via cloud or thunder, lightning on Mount Sinai, like big, bold, big things. But in John 1, verse 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek means to live in a tent. Do you guys remember what the tabernacle was? It was a tent. That's what it was. You could read it, the word became flesh, God became flesh, and tabernacled among us. In other words, before Jesus, 
God's presence abided in, existed in a temple. When Jesus showed up, God's presence abided in and lived in Jesus. Please hear, that's a big deal. God's presence does not abide in and live in and fill people, but it's doing so in Jesus. In Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus makes this big announcement. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That word, at, that phrase, at hand, to draw near, that's temple language. God was at hand in the temple. So when Jesus says this, Jewish people hear him and they know that's different. We don't talk like that, right? Okay. John chapter two, verse nine. This is when you want the keynote. It's not there. I'll email you. John two nineteen. Jesus says this. He's by the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You see what he's doing here? He's doing that classic thing where he's not just being super clear and everyone's like, was he talking about that huge structure? Because he's a carpenter, but he ain't that good. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Uh, nah, that was so stupid. Um, <laughs> but he goes, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. What's he saying? He's saying, when you kill me, I will lie dead for three days and then I will raise again and prove I'm the new temple, okay? Huge deal. All right, stick with me. Mark chapter one, verses 40 through 42. Jesus, he heals a leper, not a leopard. You ever make that mistake? He wasn't on a safari. Anyway, gosh, you guys. Um, now he heals a leper, and I don't know a ton about leprosy, but it makes sense that if you had leprosy, you were not allowed into the temple. I mean, you're contagious, but also you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. You were sick. So imagine being diagnosed with stage four cancer, and then somehow one of the consequences is you also like, can't go to the one place where you can like, cry out to God. That was this man's reality. He's facing death. They can't fix it. They don't have any way to heal it. And also, he can't go near to the temple. And God exists over there in the temple. So he can't even cry out to his creator in the way that maybe he wanted to. I don't wanna to project too much here, but it's a really hard situation. And Jesus shows up and, and heals him. And it's so beautiful for a few reasons. I mean, one, obviously, he healed him of leprosy. That, that works out. That's really nice, right? This man now knows God sees you and he heals you. But equally as important, Jesus is showing him something's changed. God can draw near to you regardless of your proximity to the temple, the physical structure. No longer do you have to seek out the temple. The temple has come to you. Groundbreaking stuff for this faith. This is really remarkable stuff here, okay? What's being implied? Wherever Jesus goes, God is there. Where he walks, God is walking. Where he breathes, God is breathing. That's what's going on, crazy stuff. This is why John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 are more beautiful than we can understand. When, John, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, when I go, I'm going to send my spirit the helper. It hit me this week. It would have been one of those, wait, what? Like, did he say, what, 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 what? Like, the temple, 
that inhabits the presence of God, Jesus, has just said, I'm going to make you temples. You are going to inhabit the presence of God. Please hear, I'm hoping that what I shared in the Old Testament helps you understand the light switch that that moment is. It is a complete shift in theology. Everything they understand about how God interacts with humans has just switched. They're being told by the new temple, Christ, that he's gonna make them temples. The one that holds the presence of God in his chest is going to share what he holds with them. Massive implications, okay. Let's keep going. Mark 15, 37 through 38. And Jesus, he's on the cross. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How significant is that detail now? You're like, why is the Bible telling me some curtain torn? That is like so random. Hope they can get a new one on discount somewhere. Like, what happened? You know, cool. No, remember, Angels guarding the Garden of Eden. The veil guarding the Holy of Holies. What does it imply? You cannot get that close. And as Jesus draws his last breath, it's so sweet, you guys, the curtain rips. The one place you cannot go lest you you will die is done away with. The sacrifice that Jesus has made, that all the priests for all their time has made, but it was never good enough. It took at least once a year, we need a day of atonement. It's done away with. In Christ, there are no more days of atonements. Is that how you say that? (laughs) Days of atonements? I don't know. In Christ, once and for all, humans can approach God in complete freedom without fear. That is crazy. We're so used to Christian thought. We've gotten a little bit spoiled. And we treat God like this needy little God that's like, oh my gosh, are you ready to give me your attention? Oh, thank you so much, I'm glad you're here. No, God is like holy and powerful and not to be messed with, but because of Christ and his pleasing sacrifice, the veil of intimidation is torn. Gosh, that's a bit. The veil that separates humans from the living presence of God is torn from top to bottom. And it doesn't need to be repaired ever again. This is what makes Acts chapter two so big. Because Jesus says, go to Samaria, go to the ends of the earth, but before you go, wait. Remember what I promised you in John 14 and 16, I'm sending the spirit. So when the spirit falls on them, The miracle that was too good to be true was theirs. God was in them. For the first time ever, God was just in a group of people. And they looked drunk because they started speaking in tongues and speaking all kinds of languages. Everyone's like, we don't know what any of y'all are saying. And then someone over there is like speaking a different language, but it's clear they know exactly what they're saying. And 3,000 people come to believe Peter's first sermon ever, that spirit-filled, the Holy Spirit will change your sermon a little bit. You know, it's kind of crazy. And This amazing miracle happens. God's presence is not just in Jesus. He's in all these people, men and women, just filled with the Spirit. Go read 1 Corinthians 12. Look at all the different gifts that are listed. That's all from the Holy Spirit. That's all a miracle of the Spirit of God choosing to dwell in humans that would surrender their life to Jesus. It's crazy stuff. That's why in 1 Corinthians, last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
verse 16, Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, grows up robust Jew, believed in Judaism so much he was persecuting and jailing Christians until he met Jesus on that little road, right? You remember that? Like he, he did not like Christianity. He did not agree with the people that said Jesus died and resurrected and had fulfilled scripture. But when he meets Jesus, it changes everything. So growing up, Paul was so religious, he was perfect. He was like the perfect Jew. And he knew where the presence of God was. It's in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And I'm not going there, but that guy's going there. And that's how it's all supposed to work. But a change happens in his life and he pins this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And when I thought about that verse this week, I realized like for a Jewish man turned Christian, turned Messianic Jew, he must have been full of awe and wonder. I wonder if he was even crying as he wrote it. Do you not know the miracle that has happened? You guys, my father's 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 father wouldn't believe his eyes. The spirit of God is living in humans right now. You need to know as you live your life, God is inside of you. And that is so precious. That is so special. You do not have to do a three-month journey, a six-year journey, a four-day journey to the temple. He's already there. You don't have to get on a horse. He's in you. Go have a nice little horse ride. He'll be there, you know? <laughs> Takes away from the point. All right. When I thought about this, it kind of just hit me new. Like, oh, at one point, the only hope of like going and being where God was was like really planning some intense travel, you know, like before cars and stuff. Like, you know, it was really intense. Like, you had to really mean it to show up to the temple if you didn't live very close to it. And people would do it out of desperation. But now, you don't have to buy plane tickets, get all the different vaccines to go to a different continent. You don't, have, you don't need me to drop a pen. When you get on a plane, God's in the plane wherever it is you're headed to. And how special it is that God is living inside of you. Like, whether you are reading the Bible or studying a textbook for an exam you waited way too long to study for, God is equally present in your heart. Like, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, whether you are standing here and worshiping or you're mourning some sin that you can't believe you fell back into, God is equally present in both. When you are in your car going from work to home, you're about to show up home to your spouse and two kids that are not about to sympathize with your hard day at work. God is with you. When you're up at 3 a.m. and you're holding that newborn and he's broken a record for how many times he can cry and wake you up before 3 a.m., God is with you. Whether you're in despair or you're in victory, he's there. When you're doing the fast walk from your dorm to class because you're running late, but you don't want to look like a dork and run, you just have to like do the like little quick thing. You're like, that's okay. Does anyone know I'm in a hurry? Yes, everyone knows you're in a hurry. God is with you. When you're shopping, he's there. When you're making breakfast, he's there. When you make coffee, you set your alarm an hour early just so you can get your perfect, nice, organized, quiet time, he's right there. And when you wake up an hour late and you're not even gonna make it to class, he's right there. There, he's in you. The Holy Spirit, child of God, if you have given your life to Jesus, please be reminded of the miracle. The Holy Spirit is running through your veins. God himself is inside of you. I thought about when Jesus said that his burden is light, his yoke is easy. I really think he wants you to know that about your prayer life. We started with the question, 
then where's the presence of God? If I don't believe it's in a Western wall, where is it? You know the answer. He's in you. That's where he is. I think God wants our prayer life to be way easier than it's been. I think sometimes it's so easy, we overthink it and just find ways to distract ourselves because it's actually just so easy. Like, pause. I could set a timer, 30 seconds, and be quiet, and you could pray, and God could just minister. It's kind of the point of the 9 a.m., right? <laughs> At any point, you can tune, guys, I really want you to hear me on this. I'm gonna pull my pants. Um, you could tune me out and tune out worship and ignore your friends for the next 30 minutes and you could just be with the Lord and solely focus on him. And there's just no telling what he'll do in your soul. And if it doesn't work the first time, doesn't work, don't use those terms. <laughs> but if you don't sense anything the first time, come back to that will. And a lifetime of going, God, you're here and you can do anything you want. And my life is yours. A lifetime of that, in a couple years, you'll show up and I'll be like, hey, you good? You're acting like one of those weird Christians that like really knows God. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's going on? <laughs> You're weirding me out. Like, that'll happen. Well, no, I speak against that. You won't be like weird, but you know what I'm saying. I'm ADD. Can you tell? <laughs> Some of you guys, when you go to your dorm room or you, or you go to your bedroom, that place represents anxiety, insecurity, depression, loneliness, addiction. It represents all these things. And it's not very fun. Sometimes it's just not fun to be alone with your thoughts. That's not all of you, but it's some of you. I've been there where alone time isn't like peaceful. It's more like, okay, cool, enemy. I'm just ready. Go ahead and just punch me a million times. I really believe that like God can transform a bedroom into a place where you get ministered to more there than you ever could here. I, I feel like I've lived that out where God started to show me, hey, when you walk into your bedroom, don't take that lightly. I may be ready to bless your life away right now. You have no idea what kind of worship you can do in that spot. No one's even here. It's just me and you and your roommate, but you got noise-canceling headphones. Rock those. In your car, when you're headed to work, about to go be a barista for $12 an hour plus tips, you're just like, this ain't even worth it. The Holy Spirit's there, and if you have no idea how powerful a parking lot five minutes early can be. Five minutes early, just leave five minutes early, show up, look at your clock. I got five minutes and 30 seconds before I gotta walk in that building and for this next four minutes and 45 seconds, just so I got some cushion, I'm gonna just listen and talk to God. Your car can bless your soul if you will just let the Lord be there. And not out of this like extra disciplined, regimented, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do kind of way, but just because God's there, right? And if this sounds really lofty, what I would encourage is patience and persistence. Be patient as you try to talk to God. It's a lifelong process. Sometimes he's trying to work something out in a decade and you're hoping he does it in two days. And he's like, I'm not in a hurry, you are. <laughs> and I'm 31, I'm elderly now. I can speak to you about this, half of y'all, because y'all are like 24. Um, but I've lived long enough to realize that it's not about like the intensity of my prayers all the time. Sometimes it's just about the consistency of my prayers, just that I keep showing up, opening my ears, and God slowly gives me an ear for his voice and he starts to make me realize, oh shoot, you actually talk to me. You actually have like words for me. Wait, you actually 
so, like dying to myself doesn't sound like the opposite of self-love anymore. It actually sounds like a sweet invitation. Like, oh, I can lay down my desires for the sake of someone else and somehow love it and feel whole? Whoa, that's gospel. But that happens in prayer. And I think we need to just know that your, your life houses the presence of God. So for communion, I want to not actually, I'm ready to talk for like another hour. And so I'm not going to do that. Thank you for listening. At communion, what I wanna encourage is that you take it on your own. You don't talk to anybody else. What I would encourage, try to critically think, what's like two places where I spend a ton of time? Just two places where I'm always there. Like I'm just my default self. Your bed, great start. Bedroom, great start. Your car, a hot shower. Like there's some really simple places. And then my encouragement, when you go to those spaces this week, put a little post-it note somewhere that just reminds you, hey, right when you walk into that place of normalcy, acknowledge the presence of God. God, I kind of believe you're here. Will you help me to believe it more? And if that's all you do, good deal. Just watch what happens when you just acknowledge, you let your brain hear yourself say, God, I, I trust that you're here. Over time, I really believe the Holy Spirit will teach you how to take full advantage that your creator that knows your soul is inside of you and knows you and has plans for you and dreams for you and has so much for you. But if we don't slow down and be quiet, quiet enough to accidentally fall asleep, and God's like, I just wanted you to go to sleep. It's all good. Just take a nap, you know? But if we don't slow down enough, I, I really think we'll miss it. I don't think God is, is trying to scream and compete with the personalized ads to get your attention. He's not trying to like funny TikTok his way into your life. He's trying to sit with you and talk to your soul. And we have to acknowledge his presence for that to happen, all right? And so I'm gonna pray briefly. We got four communion tables. Go grab communion when I say amen. Come back to your seat. Take four minutes. Think about your most normal places. And then just ask God, help me to acknowledge your presence in these very normal places, all right? God, help us to live into this. I'm making it sound so easy and beautiful and poetic. God, it's not like that. It can be distracting, it can be hard, it can take patience, it can take trying again and again and again. Give us endurance, Lord. Help us not to be little kids with no patience. Give us faith, help us to try. And Jesus, thank you that you promise your yoke is easy, your burden is light. That's really sweet of you because life is heavy. And so I do pray that prayer over us. May prayer be easy and light over these people and filled with your spirit. If they need to just be really honest and angry in your presence for the next six months, give them the courage to just get in your presence and be real honest with you. Whatever it is you're trying to lead them into, lead them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, stand up, go grab communion if you want. Come back, sit back down. All you're trying to do is name one or two normal places. Your work, your room, your class, your car, your gym. And go, God, help me to acknowledge your presence every single time I'm there. Just remind me, oh wait, you're here. You're with me, you see me, you know me, you love me, you lead me.